Tomorrow night is Tu B'Shvat, 15th day of the Hebrew month of Shvat, New Year of Trees. And if you look outside, especially in uh, New York, you don't see much going on with the trees. There are no fruits hanging from the trees. Hanging from the trees, there are, there are no blossoms, no flowers, no leaves, no nothing. Trees are pretty much uh, dormant. So the question is, why is the New Year for trees at a time when there's really nothing much to speak of about trees? And I'll tell you, growing up in, I grew up in the Midwest, in Chicago, and I remember one time my mother took us to the maple syrup farm. That's where the maple trees grow. And you go around and what you see is each of the maple trees has like a, a hollow spike hammered into the tree. And then hanging from that little spike is a bucket on a like on a handle that's hanging from that hollow spike in the tree. And that's how they tap the trees. That's where the, the fluid is dripping, the sap is dripping from the tree into those buckets, and that's how they make the maple syrup. And when do they start to tap the trees for the syrup? Um, it's a funny time, you know, end of July, I mean, July. What is this month called? January. And, yeah, that's right. Okay. I'm still signing my checks 2017, don't worry about it. End of January, beginning of February. I asked the guy, when do you do this? He's like, yeah, end of January, beginning of February. Of course, we, as Jews, know that to be Tubishvat. And he explained to us the reason why they do that. He said, you know, in, in, in the autumn, in the fall, the, the leaves change colors because the, there's less light and the, the, the leaves stop photosynthesizing, stop making food, and then the, eventually the tree shuts down. Um, there's a circulatory system inside the tree, the, the xylem and the phloem, it's like the veins and the arteries of, of a plant, and it comes to a point where that all just shuts down and nothing's really happening. And then in late January, early February, or what we as Jews call Kibishvat, something starts to happen inside of the tree. You can't see it from outside. Externally, nothing's happening. You cannot see anything externally. But inside of the tree, there's just this most subtle reawakening. The, the circulatory system of the tree begins to revive itself and the sap starts to move inside of the tree, hidden from all eyes. And that's, that's the first lesson that we learn from Tu B'Shvat and we learn from the trees. A lot of times when we think about celebrating, when we think about gratitude, we envision some point in the future where we will see the fruits, the figurative fruits of our labors. And when we will see the fruits, then we will express gratitude. Uh, and until that time comes, then no, we will reserve the right to be frustrated and discontent. And the lesson of Tu B'Shvat is the time to celebrate the trees is when there is no outwardly recognizable change, when there's only the slightest stirring, reawakening in, in the depth, in the inner hidden recesses of the tree, that's the time to, 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 to say thank you. We say thank you for the fruits before we get them. And, you know, we know this about each other. We know this about human nature. And reality works the same way. You know, if you want to influence somebody's behavior, don't nag them about what they're not doing. Catch them doing the right thing. Label it. Recognize it get more of it. 
It's interesting because the opposite works as well. You catch people doing things that you don't like and you label it and recognize it and talk about it and you get more of it. We don't want more of it, we want less of it, but that's, that's, that's how it works. So we know with each other that when, you know, sometimes you have to do this with, with, with spouses, you know. You just, especially, I know, I, I don't want to sound like I'm picking on the women, but the women are really, they're amazing at catching husbands messing up. And what I'm saying is that's a God-given talent. Hashem blessed women with the ability. It really is. Hashem gave you that keen insight, you know, to know when we are messing up. But you could, you could just flip it. You could rechannel it. And you can catch us when we happen to get something right. And you can just label it, acknowledge it, recognize it. And a funny thing happens, we make more and more of the same. And the same thing works with reality. The same thing works with the way Hashem runs the world. Um, oftentimes, I think we are mistaken in believing that the, that the most effective prayer is please, when really the most effective prayer generally is thank you. So instead of telling Hashem what he's getting wrong, how he's not living up to your expectations, even when you do it in a, you know, in a polite way, like, please, could you get it right? Could you, <laughs> could you get my memo, please? Uh, instead of doing that, we can just, yes, we can express gratitude, and we can say, you know what, here are the things that I have in my life, even if they're just subtle, even if just the tiny, like, the tiniest bit of stirring, like, within inside of the tree, something that's not even discernible from the outside, but there's just a little bit of movement, is at the something moving, beginning, a trickle, and to say thank you, and, and then it opens up the flow. It opens up the flow and makes more and more of that good stuff present in our lives uh, in abundance. So that's the first lesson of the trees. Now, why are we learning lessons from the trees? In, I mean, where do we get this notion that trees have what to teach us? There's a verse in the Torah. Ki odem Man is a tree of the field. And it's an interesting verse because you can read it rhetorically also. It can be stated as a, as a, read as a rhetorical statement. Uh, is a man a tree of the field? Um, and the context, if you're, just, if you're wondering the, the, the literal context there in the Torah, is it's talking about waging war and that sometimes when the army besieges a city, so there's damage to property, uh, like a tree, for instance. And the question is, um, are you allowed to damage the tree, or do you have to avoid damage? And um, so the, the Torah says rhetorically, Ki odem eitz is a, is a tree, a person? Why are you fighting the tree? Like, is it, you're going to be fighting, you know, fight the enemy, fight the soldiers, don't fight the trees. The, the Gemara talks about this verse and uh, explains homiletically that this is also a guideline about Torah scholars. The Torah scholars are compared to trees. And it says like this, if the Torah scholar is like a fruit-bearing tree, then leave him alone, let him flourish. Don't bother him. To the contrary, receive from him, seek him out. But if the Torah scholar is like a non-fruit-bearing tree, then chop him down, meaning get rid of him. Don't, don't, don't learn from him. So what is, what is this passage in the Talmud talking about? First of all, the verse says, Adam, person, but the Talmud says Torah scholar. Why does it replace person with Torah scholar? Um, and what does it mean a Torah scholar who's fruit-bearing and one who's not fruit-bearing? Evidently, fruit-bearing doesn't mean that the person has teachings, because it says, don't learn from the teachings of the person who's not fruit-bearing. So he can have teachings and not be fruit-bearing at the same time. So what are the fruits, if not teachings? Follow? There could be fruits, and yet... I mean, there, there could be teachings, and yet that same scholar is called he's not fruit-bearing. 
Yeah. So I'll tell you a question. It's sort of a from the from the Hasidic point of view, the, this question even comes up. But within, you know, there's a concept of microcosm, macrocosm, that all them that a person is an oilam cotton, is a small world, and also the idea that the oilam, the world, is an adam gogel, is a big person, the anthropomorphism of of the universe or the universality of, of the man, or woman, as it were. Um, the world is made up of mineral, meaning inanimate, vegetative, and animal. You, you ever played 20 questions? That's one of the early questions in 20 questions when you try to narrow stuff down, right? Mineral vegetable, animal. And just like in the world there's mineral, vegetable, and animal, within the person there's mineral, vegetable, and animal. And what are they? They are action, emotion, and intellect. How so? Action, deed, physical behavior, um, that's likened to mineral, to an inanimate object, because what distinguishes physical deed is that it takes place in the physical world. It's, a, it's, it's physicality, it's tangibility is, is, is what distinguishes it. So it's like a physical object that might not have life, but it, it exists in the physical world. So the same thing, deed is, is physicality. Then you have vegetation. Vegetation is like the emotions. Why are the emotions like vegetation? Um, because emotions grow. Deed is deed. Like, you put on tefillin, or you did it. Chas v'shal. You know, it's, it's a deed. It either exists, it either is, or it isn't. Emotions have um, a continuum. In other words, I put on tefillin, and I had very little kavana. Or I put on tefillin, and I had a lot of kavana. Emotions are like vegetation, because they grow, and they expand. They become more intense, more rich. Now the thing is, emotions are like plants because they're rooted to the ground. When emotions grow, they don't pick up and move. So for instance, chesed doesn't become gvore, gvore doesn't become chesed. I, if I have a love, let's say, love doesn't turn into awe, Love remains love, but it can become a bigger and a bigger love, like a plant that is always going to be in the same location, but in that location it can get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's emotion. Intellect, intellect is like an animal, because not only it grows, but it moves around. Intellect moves around. That's why a good lawyer could argue, ostensibly, either side, he could. Either side could be his client. Intellect, really stone-cold, objective intellect, is impartial. That's why, for instance, when, when you study in Gemara, you can learn two or three or four or more par paradoxical svaras, intellectual uh, standpoints on the same idea, and, and the intellect is able to do that. Emotion doesn't do that, because emotion is, this is how I feel about it. If you feel about it this way, you don't feel about it that way. It's very partisan. It takes sides. Emotion takes sides. Intellect is like an animal. It can pick up and move around. Okay. So here's the thing. When we say, Odom eats hasab, that a person is like a tree, it seems funny. There's something funny there. Person's like a tree. Tree is vegetation, is emotion. You're telling me that the hallmark of the human being is emotion. That's what that verse seems to be saying. But is that what distinguishes the human being? The capacity for emotion? No, it's our intellect, it's our intelligence, cognitive thinking that makes us unique, that sets us apart from the animals. So what does it mean that a person is like a tree of the field? 
So I'll tell you, there was once a guy, he went on an excursion on a hot air balloon and he got lost. And he didn't know where he was. And he saw below in a field, he saw a person. So he started screaming as loud as he could to get the person's attention. Hey, hey, hey. The guy in the, in the field looks up and he sees the guy in the hot air balloon. He says, yeah. The guy in the hot air balloon says, I'm lost. Where am I? The guy down below says, it looks like you're in a hot air balloon. The guy in a hot air balloon says, yes, yes, I know, I know, I'm in a hot air balloon. I mean, where in the world? He says, where in the world? 38 degrees north, 22 degrees east. The guy in the hot air balloon says, no, no, no. Can you get more specific? Where am I located in, in, in relation to, 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 to the world, to where things are? He says, oh, you look like you're about 200 feet off the ground. The guy in the hot air balloon says, excuse me, sir, are you a rabbi? The guy down below says, yes, yes, I'm a rabbi. How do you know I'm a rabbi? <laughs> and the guy in the hot air balloon says, because from the minute I met you, Everything you've told me has been 100% true and completely irrelevant. <laughs> Unfortunately, there is a stereotype about rabbis. Really, about any type of expert, where you become such an expert that it becomes academic and it ceases to have personal relevance. I heard a good story. Um, Joseph Talushkin told me, it's interesting, it's interesting he told me the story because his father was an accountant. Now why does that make the story interesting? I guess you'll see in a minute. Okay, so he told me the story that um, Herbert Wiener, who wrote Nine and a Half Mystics, Herbert Wiener was a reform rabbi for many years in New Jersey, and then he became Orthodox. He wrote a book called Nine and a Half Mystics, and um, when he was in college, when he was a young man, he studied at Hebrew University in the old, old days. And he was taking the Kabbalistic Studies class with the professor of Kabbalistic Studies there at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, Gershon Shalom. Uh, if you don't know what Gershon Sholem is, basically, if you go to the library, like a non-Jewish library, and you get any book on Kabbalah, any scholarly book on Kabbalah, nine out of ten chance it's Gershon Sholem. He was a an expert in in, in Kabbalah, um, a German academic, very very intellectual, and let's just say it nicely, not such a not so observant, to put it mildly. A professor, a professor of Kabbalistic studies. So Herbert Wiener says, told the story, uh, he's sitting in class and a chassid came in. There was a chassid there by the name of um, Avram Yehudachem, who was the son of a famous, if you know, uh, Chabad Chassidim. There was a great chassid by the name of Radatz. The, uh, they used to call him Reb Herschel Chernagover. So in the last couple of years of his life, he went to Eretz Yisrael, he made Aliyah, and he, ha he had a son there, Avram Yehudachin. So this Avram Yehudachin somehow appears in the Kabbalistic studies class of Gershon Shalom, the academic. And the Chassid, this Avram Yehudachin, starts sparring with the professor, with Gershon Shalom. And he says to him, do you know the difference between 
a professor of Kabbalistic studies, and a chassid. The difference between a professor of Kabbalistic studies and a chassid is like the difference between an accountant and a business owner. What's an accountant? An accountant spends, spends his entire day with numbers. And every one of those numbers represents money, down to the penny. And the accountant is the expert in every single one of these numbers. He knows exactly how much money to the penny came in today, how much went out today, everything. But the thing is, as much as he's an expert in all those numbers, down to the penny, once he finishes his day's work and he closes his books and he goes home, he doesn't have access to any of that money. It's not his money. The business owner, on the other hand, he may look at the books once a week, once a month. He doesn't know to the penny, he doesn't know to the dollar, but he has a basic idea, whatever it is he needs to know about the direction of the growth of the company. And uh, it's his money. He doesn't know it as well as the accountant knows it, but it's his, it belongs to him. So he says, the professor of Kabbalistic studies is an expert like an accountant. You might know every letter of, of the Holy Zohar. You're an expert, you can look it up, you can know, you know where everything is to be found. You open up a Zohar and then you just sail through it. But that's like an accountant. At the end of the day, do you bring it with you? Is that how you live? He says, of course, you know, how much does he know? How much Kabbalah does he really know? Okay, maybe he knows Kigavna, because it's in the Siddur Friday night, you know. What does he know? But, but, the ideas that are represented in the Zohar, he feels irrelevance. He feels that they are pertinent to his life. That's how he lives. When the, when, when, when the Talmud says, Odemetz Asadah is talking about a Torah scholar who gives fruit and a Torah scholar who doesn't give fruit, it means like this. A human being is marked by his relationship with the emotions. Let me say that again. A human being is marked by his intellect, but intellect is marked by its relationship with the emotions. How do you know that you really know when it informs your emotions, when it becomes personally relevant. So as long as it remains academic, as long as it's theoretical, it's just an idea, it's not emotional, it doesn't dictate your passions, your loyalties, then there's something lacking in the humanity of that intellect. So the Talmud says like this, how do you know which Torah scholar is, is human, is a real mensch, is an odom, the one who has fruits. And fruits means the one who is emotionally connected to the material and can transmit that to you, that you should also be emotionally connected to the material. There could be a Torah scholar. He's not a mensch. He's not an odom. He has seichel. He has intellect. He's very informative. He teaches the subject. But he can't make it emotionally pertinent. He can't make it relevant to you. Don't receive from him. He's like the, the rabbi down in the field who screams up at the guy in the hot air balloon. Everything he says is true and, and, and irrelevant. If, if you know something, particularly a piece of Torah knowledge and it doesn't make you passionate and it doesn't make you care then there's, there's something wrong with the way that you know it and, 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 if, and if somebody's teaching it that way well that, you know, nowadays we have the internet you can look up any information is very quickly and amply available. So we don't need encyclopedias today. We don't need people with encyclopedia brains. We can all do that with, with a Google search. What we need are people who relate emotionally and can help you relate emotionally to 
the Torah information that you know. So that, that's, that's another lesson we learned from a person being like a tree, is a fruit-giving tree is one where what you know affects what you care about. Those aren't two different things. You don't know one thing and care about something different. What else did we learn from the trees? There was a Tubishvat Fabreng in, in Tafshin Nun in uh, 1990. And the Rebbe spoke about the Shivas Haminim, the seven species with which the land is blessed. It says the land of Israel is blessed with seven species. Two of them are grain and five are fruits. The number went through each of them and explained what they represent in each of us. Each of us is a little bit of all of these species. And at different times in our lives, <coughs> we relate more to one of these species than the other. The first fruit, well, first you have the grains, you have wheat and you have barley. Those are staples. So you always have, whatever else is going on, it's got to be staple. It has to be grain, wheat and barley. And that represents wheat is human food, barley is animal fodder, or generally it was in biblical times. Uh, I think barley got an elevated status lately. But wheat and barley is food for the, for the human, food for the animal. Those are the two souls, godly soul, animal soul. Okay, those are the staples. But once we have the staples, once we have the basic nutrition, now comes fruit. Fruit is the dessert. Fruit is the garnish. Fruit is what else is going on in your life right now. Okay, so the first fruit that we have is grapes. What do we learn from the grapes? How do we relate to the grapes? The grape is an interesting fellow. Um... We're told, Nichnas Yain That's what the Talmud tells us. When Yain goes in, when wine goes in, which is essentially fermented grapes, Yaitzasoid, the secrets come out. Okay, we all know what that means. People get a little bit uh, inebriated, they get relaxed, and they're not so guarded, and they'll say things that they don't normally say. Okay. But also, what is it telling us? You know, yayin, yud, yud, nun. Yud is 10, so we got two tens, 20. Nun is 50, so 20 and 50 is 70. Yayin is 70. Soid, soid is samach, vav, dalit, so samach is 60, vav is 6, dalit is 4, 66 and 4 is 70. So the yayin and the soid are really the same thing. They're both 70, but they're in different forms. One is in latent form or potential form, the other is actualized. Why is it nichnas yain yetzisayin? Why does wine have that um, property? And why does it only say it about yain? There's other alcohol, there's other inebriants. Because that's the idea, the, the grape itself represents this idea. The grape is potential wine. You make the grape into wine not by adding another element to it, but by bringing out the element that is latent within it. So that's the same idea of nichnas that the wine represents the, the actualization of hidden potential. So a secret doesn't mean something you didn't know before. I mean, a secret that you reveal. doesn't mean something you didn't know before. It means something you didn't say before, or you didn't even think to say, or maybe you didn't even think for yourself, but you always knew it, or you wouldn't be able to reveal it now. What is the nichnas yain yoytzisoyd in our lives? Other than um, drinking wine all day, which I don't recommend. Um, it has side effects. Wine, Torah tells us, wine gladdens the heart of God and man. Wine is gladness, wine is joy. Joy itself has this same property. 
Joy itself reveals hidden potential. When you're happy, when you're in a good mood, all of a sudden you exhibit energy you didn't know you had. You didn't think you had it. Well, apparently you do. You didn't go out and do anything different, but all of a sudden you got good news and it's, you feel energized, and all of a sudden the energy is there. When you're in a good mood, all of a sudden you become smarter. I can tell you for sure. You give a class and you're in a bad mood, and maybe it has nothing to do with the room or the students or any, any it has to do with what happened 10 minutes before you walked into the room. And you can't think, and you're not particularly inspiring, and uh, everything falls flat. But sometimes you're in a good mood, you're enjoying yourself, and all of a sudden you become a genius. Well, what, you, you, you found out new stuff while you're standing up there? No. You had it all along, but it only comes out when you're joyful. Joy is the activator of hidden potential. So what is the grape? What is the grape in all of our lives is the idea that whatever it is you think you've got, you've got a lot more, and, and in order to discover it, to unleash it, you've got to be happy. Don't wait until you're performing on an excellent level to then be happy. That's not how it works. Get happy, and then you start performing at your peak level. Whatever you do, when you do it joyously, you do it on a much higher level. Whatever it is. Anything. What else do we have after the grape? We have the fig. What's the fig? The fig is, I would say perhaps, um, has a certain notoriety in that the fig is identified as the fruit of the sin of the tree of knowledge. There are different opinions about what it was, but the closest association, and you see that Rashi even mentions it, that after the sin of the tree of knowledge, when Adam and Chava gained self-consciousness and they became um, ashamed, so they covered their nakedness before they were innocent. They didn't have any such shame. And how did they do it? They covered it with a fig leaf. And Rashi points out that from the same fruit that caused the self-consciousness, that's what they used to make clothing to try to remedy the symptoms of self-consciousness. So the original fruit <coughs> of the tree of knowledge was a fig. Figs represent das. What is das? We, we often translate das as knowledge, but knowledge, I think, implies information. Like if you know a lot of stuff, that's das. But that's not das. Das is not knowing a lot. I'll tell you where else we see the term das. Also with Adam and Eve. It says, that Adam knew Eve. It doesn't mean that he knew who she was, like he could pick her up, pick her out of a, a lineup. By the way, that wouldn't have been very difficult in those days. Can you tell us which, which one of these women is your wife? I don't know. That one? <laughs> well, Adam knew Eve is talking about the fact that they were intimate and um, they had children. Das is to become intellectually intimate with a subject until you have children. Intellectual intimacy with a subject means, like we were talking about before, relating to something deeply, making it personally relevant, which is a mental exercise, but if you do it right, just like the marital union, um, what will happen if you become intimately familiar with a subject? Although it's an intellectual exercise, but it will give birth to children. That's what we were talking about before. The children of intellect are emotion. So 
The fig represents mindfulness. The fig means totally be here. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're learning, whatever you're experiencing, allow yourself to relate to it intimately. Somebody once told me, intimacy is into me see. Look into me deeply. So whatever it is that you're relating to, you're talking to somebody, you're having a conversation, don't let it be perfunctory. Don't let it be, you know, they say, what's the definition of a boring person? Somebody who, when you ask them how they are, they tell you. Right? Because we do everything perfunctorily. That's just, those are the unwritten rules of social engagement that you could have 10, 20 minutes of back and forth and nobody meant a word they said. That's the opposite of being a fig, of having das. Now there's a story, one time, the previous Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe, was fabrenging with his siddim, and he asked if one of the elder siddim could relate something that he had heard from the previous Rebbe's father, from the Rebbe Nishab, the fifth Rebbe. And nobody wanted to repeat anything, nobody wanted to speak up. And uh, the previous Rebbe said, no, I'm serious, I want to hear somebody, somebody should say something that they heard from my father. So finally somebody said, okay, fine, I'll repeat something I once heard from your father. And everybody got ready to hear what teaching this Chassid was going to um, relate in the name of the fifth Rebbe. Chassid said, the Rebbe Nishmosei, meaning the, the fifth Rebbe, once said to me, L'chaim. And everybody laughed. They thought that was very clever. He once said to you, L'chaim, right? Okay. Like, it's like saying, he once said to me, Hi, what's going on? You know, like. And the Friedrich Rebbe got very serious. And he said, Mit dem Tatens L'chaim spielt sich mir nicht. With my father's L'chaim, don't joke around. A lot of us, we could say l'chaim, we could say hey, how you doing, we could say will you marry me, you know, just, just different stuff we're saying, you know. How present are we with those words? But the previous Rebbe was saying that when his father said l'chaim, he put his essence and being into that because that's how he was. Whatever he said, whatever he was doing, there was mindfulness, total, total um, engagement, being present, being totally here and now. So there's no such thing as he just said l'chaim. If he said l'chaim to you, he was, he was bonding with you on the deepest possible level because that's how he did everything. So to be a fig means mindfulness, being present, being totally engaged in the here and now, not being somewhere else, which we are really good at nowadays with the little, those little devices we carry around where we mentally, emotionally, check out of whatever present activity is not 100% exhilaratingly engaging, right? So we're very intolerant. You have about three seconds to bore me before this comes out and that's it, and then 10 more seconds till I walk away. So being a fig means I don't do that. Whatever is happening now, I really show up. I'm really there. Okay, what's next is the pomegranate. What do we learn from the pomegranate? It's funny, the fig and the pomegranate are like foils for each other. They're almost like opposites. You know how it is in Judaism, right? The paradox, there's always the, the opposites, how they play off of each other, and they're both true. So, you know the story about the, the couple who comes to the rabbi with a shalom bias issue, and the wife speaks first, and she says her whole uh, complaint, and the rabbi says, you're right. And then uh, the husband says, what about me? Don't I get to say my side? He says, go ahead, say your side. The husband says his side, and the rabbi says, you're right. And the rabbi's own wife happened to be walking by, and she overhears this. She says, how can they both be right? And the rabbi says to her, you're right. <laughs> so in Judaism, 
there are, we, we are very comfortable with, we embrace the paradox, the opposites. Just like it's really important to be a fig, which means to be totally there, it's also important sometimes to be a pomegranate, which means to be a hypocrite. Very important to know how to be a hypocrite. We call it fake it till you make it. Oh, but I'm not totally into it. I don't, I'm not really passionate about it. That's okay. Just do it. Yeah, but I'm not feeling it. I'm not feeling it. That, that's fine. Just show up. But I'm not even going to be into it. It's okay. Why is the pomegranate like that? First of all, look at a pomegranate. If you, if you open up the pomegranate, all the fruits are in there. First of all, it's like cordoned, cordoned off with all the, you know, the compartments, you know, the white stuff that keeps it, you know, the sections. But then even within the sections, every little tiny piece of fruit is in its own little membrane. It's not like an apple where you just you cut into the apple and it's apple through and through. The pomegranate, the fruit is compartmentalized. Each piece of fruit is in its own tiny little uh, sack. Well, what does it mean to be a pomegranate? It means to be compartmentalized. It means to be fragmented in, in, in a good way. It means to be able to say, you know what, I'm not feeling it, but it's fine. I show up and I do it anyway. You know what it also means? It means to say, you know what, a minute ago I did something I'm ashamed of. But I don't have to be loyal to that. I can betray myself. You know, sometimes we say, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm duty-bound to be going through a difficult time in life right now. You know why? Because I messed up my life a minute ago. So I should continue on that trajectory. And no, pomegranate comes and says, um, just because I made a stupid choice a minute ago doesn't mean I have to continue making stupid choices. Oh, but that would be so inconsistent. That's good. You can be inconsistent. It's fine if all of your mitzvahs, if every good thing you do is totally compartmentalized and contained in its own little membrane. That's fine. Do it like that. Don't worry that you're not consistent, that you're not through and through all goodness. It's okay if the goodness is compartmentalized, separate, a little here, a little there. Get it where you can get it. And that's why the sages say, even the wanton sinners of Israel are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Why, why do they say like a pomegranate? You know the famous story that a chosid, not a Lubavitcher chosid, came to the Rebbe and the Rebbe asked him to repeat something in the name of his Rebbe. And he said, that his Rebbe was asking, how does the Gemara say that even the wanton sinners, the Pesha Yisrael, are full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate. If they're Pesha Yisrael, if they're wanton sinners, how can they be full of mitzvahs? And uh, the Rebbe said, I had the uh, opposite question. If they're full of mitzvahs, how can you call them sinners? What's the void? They're full of mitzvahs. Like a pomegranate is full of mitzvahs. It didn't become who I am yet. It didn't really totally penetrate. It didn't transform me on the inside. I'm full of these mitzvahs. Each little mitzvah is in its own place, disconnected from every other mitzvah. I didn't yet undergo that, that transformation. It, I'm sort of a hypocrite when I do mitzvahs. And you know what? That's fine. Be full of mitzvahs like a pomegranate. Be full of mitzvahs that are each one in its own place, disconnected from each other, disconnected from your personality, disconnected from what you might even really be wanting to be doing right now. It's okay. Be a hypocrite. Do the right thing when you don't feel like it. Do the right thing even when you feel like it's not genuine. I'm not being my real self. It's not authentic. It's okay. Don't be authentic. Lie to me. It's fine. No problem. Be a match. Totally the opposite of the, of, of the fig. The fig says, get totally into it. Become it. The pomegranate says, and if not, you could do the opposite as well. As long as good things are happening. Okay. We have the fig and the pomegranate bookends. What comes next? How many species did we do so far? Keeping, keeping track? The wheat and the barley, were the we have seven total. So we did the wheat and the barley, and then we did the, the first fruit was the grape. So we did that one. Grape stands alone, because the grape enhances and intensifies everything. Right? Reveals and brings out everything. Um, then we did fig, and then pomegranate. So what do we have left? 
date. We have two more to go? Yeah? Olive date. Okay. Like the fig and the pomegranate are sort of like a duo, like opposites, yeah? Uh, olive and date are also opposites that reflect each other or complement each other. What's the olive? Well, we know that olive is bitter. Olive is bitter. And the bitterness of, of, of the olive represents the bitterness of life, hardships of life, which are um, part of life. You know, if, if we wanted perfect bliss, the soul would have remained up there in heaven. It would have come down here to a place of challenge. If you were in my Tanya class this morning, don't ruin the joke. I slipped and I, I told one of my jokes from tonight, this morning, so just, or pretend you forgot it already. A couple of guys are sitting uh, in Helm, you know, in Helm they think they're very smart, they think they're very philosophical, but they were fools. So a couple of guys in Helm are sitting and talking, and one says to the other, says, you know, Chaim, considering how difficult life is, sometimes one considers if it would have been better never to have been born. And the other guy says, yeah, but realistically, how many guys are that lucky? <laughs> how many guys do you know who weren't born? You know? To exist is to undergo hardship, that is, life. It's bitter. But it's also, again, like the olive. How do you get the oil out of the olive? Through crushing. crushing. So, distress is part of life. Um, pressure is part of life. Part of growth is being uncomfortable. And we shouldn't run away from discomfort. We should allow ourselves to feel, not, not to inflict it upon ourselves, God forbid, don't be a masochist. You know what the uh, masochist said to the sadist? He said, hurt me. You know what the sadist said back? No. It's a deep joke. You don't think about it. You won't do it. He likes it too much. You won't, won't, won't do it for him. You don't have to go looking. You don't have to be a glutton for punishment. In fact, one of our morning blessings we make is we ask God, don't test me. Don't make it hard for me. But when God decides, when God decides, we don't decide, but when he decides, yeah, you know what, uh, I'm going to give you a little challenge today. Uh, don't run away from it. Don't defer it. Uh, live it. Be there in the struggle. I heard someone once say, pain is weakness leaving the body. Feel it. Yeah. Not just physical pain, emotional pain. Pain is weakness leaving the body. Let yourself feel it. That's growth. That's growth. There's no pain that doesn't yield growth, and there's no growth that doesn't have some pain. That's, that's the olive. Just accept the fact that life's always going to be a struggle. That's the nature of it. The nature of life is a struggle. Okay, once you've got that through your head and you're ready to accept the fact life is always going to be difficult, life's always going to be a struggle, we're always going to be striving and never arriving, then I'll introduce to you the date. And the date is the opposite message. The date is that perfection is attainable. The date means we can get there, we can arrive at that promised land. There's a certain species of date that Gemara talks about that only gives fruit after 70 years. 70 corresponds to the seven emotions, seven emotional facets of the soul, you know, like during the seven weeks of Sphira between Pesach and Shavuos, we count down the seven 
spheroids actually have 49 because the seven within the seven, the seven emotions within the other seven emotions, but actually it's not only the seven emotions which are in all seven emotions, but all ten soul powers, there is also the intellectual capacities as they are reflected within the emotions. So it's not just chesed shebechesed, gvura shebechesed, tvira shebechesed, really there's chachma shebechesed, and bina shebechesed, and das shebechesed, and then chesed shebechesed, gvura shebechesed, tvira shebechesed, and so on. So there are ten subsets of all seven emotions. Seventy represents the perfection, the attainment of all of those subsets. We put the whole package together, all ten within the seven. By the way, there was once, uh, I'll just mention to you, there was once a, one of the relatives of the Lubavitcher himself was not a Rebbe, but um, he married into a non Lubavitcher uh, dynasty. And his father-in-law was like uh, more of the school of Hasidism where they prayed passionately, uh, but relatively quickly. Not quickly, like, you know, get it done, but you know, they, as opposed to the Chabad style, which was very slow and contemplative um, and took hours and hours and hours. And because it took so long, um, generally speaking, one who would pray that way contemplatively would not pray with the minion. So when this particular chassid got married, his father-in-law said to him, I want you to guarantee that you're marrying into our family, <clears throat> that you're going to pray with the minion. He says, yes, always with a minion. And then the first Shabbos, Shabbos Sheva Brachas, after the chasana, this the, the this groom, it was afternoon and he's still in shul. He didn't come home for kiddush yet. So the father-in-law went down there. He says, "What's going on here? You're davening all day. And your shachris is taking all day long. Nobody's here. There's no minion. Everybody went home already." He said, "You always daven with the minion." He says, "Yes, I always daven with the minion. The minion within me. I have to put together all ten soul powers before I talk to God." So, the, the date represents, I've put together all my soul powers, all ten as they are within the seven, seventy, the completion, the perfection. And, and within perfection, what is the ultimate perfection? What is the ultimate perfection? Ultimate perfection, you know, we could, we could understand this with another story of a tree. The Gemara tells us about two of the Amaroyim, two of the sages of the Talmud, Nachman and Rabbi Yitzchak, and one asked the other for a blessing. And he said, let me tell you a story. Before I, I'm going to bless you, I want to tell you a story. He says, there was once a man that... Um, he spent some time sitting under a lovely tree, which provided him shade and provided him fruit. And there was a stream that ran by next to the, to the tree. And as he got up to take leave, he wanted to bless the tree. He said, Elon, Elon, tree, O tree, how should I bless you? Should I bless you that you give good shade? You already give good shade. Should I bless you that you bear good fruits, you already bear good fruits. Should I bless you that a stream, pleasant stream runs by next to you, a pleasant stream already runs by you. What I bless you is that all the trees that are born from your seed should be exactly like you. What does that mean? Real perfection is not sustained internally. Real perfection is not within a closed system. Real perfection overflows. Real perfection is transmitted. Perfection, the ultimate, is influencing others. 
that's also the date. The date represents influencing others. The, 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 the Posuk in Tilim, Kapitel Tzadik, in chapter 90 of Psalms, tells us, Tzadik Kitamar Yifnar, Ke'eres Belvon in Yiske. The Tzadik, the righteous one, will flourish like a date palm. He'll grow tall like a cedar of Lebanon. And the Baal Shem Tov asked, why do we say the Tzadik is like the date palm and we say it's like the cedar? Which one is it? Pick, pick one or the other. And the Baal Shem Tov explains that the verse is actually intimating that there are two types of Tzadikim. There are two types of Tzadikim. One type of Tzadik is what we call colloquially in Yiddish, in Hasidic parlance, we refer to it as the tzaddik in pelts. Tzaddik in pelts means a tzaddik who wears a fur coat. A pelt, a fur coat. Why is he a tzaddik in a fur coat? So think about it like this. The world is cold, spiritually cold. <coughs> this world, a spiritually cold world. And you, and you, and you got to warm up. So what does this tzaddik do? He knows how to warm himself up. He knows how to not succumb to the spiritual coldness of this world. He has his spiritual fur coat. And it keeps him warm. So it doesn't matter what's going on in the environment around him. He's warm. You know what the, sh the, the shortcoming is? He's warm. He's wearing a fur coat. That doesn't do anything for anybody else. As opposed to what? There's another type of a tzaddik who lights a fire. And now it's not just warm for him, it's also warm for him, but it's warm for everybody who comes around. Tzaddik means two types of tzaddik, and one type of a tzaddik is like a eres, like a Lebanese cedar. A Lebanese cedar is incredibly tall. King Solomon, when he made the temple, he used it. Lebanese cedar. These are tall, mighty trees. That's like a person who his whole thrust, his whole trajectory in life is in becoming tall. How high can I reach? How high can I reach? And the thing is, the cedar reaches very, very tall, but it doesn't give fruits. There are no cedar fruits. It's not, you never heard of cedar fruits? There are no cedar fruits. No such thing as, it's not a fruit-bearing tree. In contrast, the date palm, date palm's not a short tree, it's not a, it's not a shrub, and the date palm is tall, but it's not as tall as the cedar. But what is the date palm? The date palm has luscious fruits that give energy and nourishment to others. The date palm takes some of the energy that it would be using for its own attainment of its own spiritual heights and says, you know what, let me redirect that into helping others. It's interesting, the, the Gemara in Gitan tells us that there used to be a custom the Jewish people used to have in the, during the Roman times in, in, in the land of Israel there was a custom that when a boy was born, the family would plant a cedar. And that on the day of his chuppah, they would cut down the cedar and they would build the chuppah out of the cedar. It's a whole story there in Gittin about when the Roman uh, governor came through and cut down the trees and he caused uh, an uprising among the Jews. At any rate, the question is, what's the symbolism of this? And the idea is like this. It's the same idea of date, palm, and cedar. A boy is born, you plant a cedar. Childhood is selfish time. It's me time. It's supposed to be. Your childhood is about you perfecting yourself. Your parents take care of you. Everything's done for you, so you can just focus on your own growth. But you're not supposed to stay that way forever. You're not supposed to be focused on your own growth forever. Eventually, it comes adulthood. Adulthood means just like your parents set aside their lives to take care of you. Now you set aside your own life to take care of your children, take care of your community, take care of the world. It can't be about me. So they used to plant that cedar when the boy was born and say, okay, grow, grow as tall as you can. And then on the day of the wedding, they cut that cedar down and say, now we're going to make a chuppah out of it because you're done with that. You're done with the cedar phase. We're all done with growing tall. Now it's got to be about something else. It's got to be about what, what, what you give. 
So the date palm doesn't grow as tall as the cedar, but the date palm does something the cedar doesn't do. It gives energy and nourishment to others. It shares its gifts with others. And that's the ultimate perfection. That's the ultimate perfection. I, I, was, I was told a story about a... story was told to me by one of the, the, the Hecht family. This event, there was a chassid named J.J. Hecht, Yankiv Yehuda Hecht, He was doing an event, and a guy got up to the mic, not a stranger, somebody they knew. In fact, the name of this fellow was Shloyme Weiss, Weiss, um, who was a Baba for Chassid. Um, and he got up to the mic during the live event, and he said, you know, Rabbi Hecht is, is, is biased. He cannot tell you about Lubavitch. I'm, you know, I'm not a Lubavitcher, so I'm going to tell you about, about uh, Lubavitch. He says, I was in Auschwitz. And he proceeds to tell a story about what happened. He was, he was in Auschwitz with his friend, Yossi, Yossi Gross. So this was Schlenevas and Yossi Gross. Schlenevas tells the story. He says, I'm there in Auschwitz with, with Yossi. And he's going to show you they locked this in a freezer. And all I'm thinking to myself is, I got to stay alive. I got to keep moving. I got to stay alive. I cannot die. And um, Yossi's in front of me. And Yossi's whimpering and he's crying and he's saying, Shlema, I'm cold, rub my shoulders. And, and Shlema says, and I'm thinking to myself, I have kayak for this? You know how many calories I'm living on a day in Auschwitz? I, I'm literally trying to preserve my last ounce of strength so I don't pass out in that freezer. And he's asking, rub his shoulders? But what could I do? I can't say no. I did it. And I thought to myself, this could be the death of me. And I rubbed Yossi's shoulders. Very well... Um, thinking that very well I could be expending my last calorie, my last ounce of energy, and uh, I will pass out rubbing his shoulders, and that'll be it. I'll never get up. So I rubbed Yossi's shoulders for as long as I had to until he would stop whimpering, and then I stopped to preserve my strength. And I was preserving my strength, and I, I don't know how long the passage of time was. Obviously, there's no clock in the freezer, there's no windows, there's no nothing. And then I hear it again. I hear Yossi, whimpering, Shlem, I'm, I'm cold, rub my shoulders. So I did it again, I rubbed his shoulders. And as soon as I could possibly stop, I stopped, because I'm not going to kill myself rubbing his shoulders. And, and, and to, not to be morbid, but once he got quiet, you don't waste energy rubbing a dead person's shoulders. Maybe he's not even alive anymore. So he says, it went like this the whole night. I don't know how long it was going, but he would cry, rub his shoulders. As soon as I could stop, I would stop. And he would cry again. I would do it again. And the, and the door opened. And the door opens. He says, I see soldiers in Russian uniforms. We're liberated. We're free to go. It's the next day. We've been there all night. And I look around the freezer. He says, every single man in that freezer had frozen to death that night. Except for two. Yossi and me. Yossi survived. He remained warm because I was rubbing his shoulders all night. I survived because I remained warm by rubbing Yossi's shoulders all night. So Shlomavai says, I'm going to say it for, for Rabbi Hecht. Lubavitcher Rebbe knows the trick. But if you want to stay spiritually alive, you have to enliven somebody else. That's the date palm. That's perfection. So whatever you have, you give it away. You share it. And you won't lose. It's not only you won't lose, you'll only gain. There's something... You know, when it comes to material things, when you share it... So we have a munna, we have faith that you won't lose out by sharing you'll get it back. Hashem will pay you back. Right? If you give tzedakah, you'll get it back. When it comes to sharing your Yiddishkeit, I'm talking about whatever it is that you're passionate at, you know, you're good at in your Yiddishkeit, whatever mitzvahs that you really have a feeling for, whatever you're a, uh, a fig, whatever, whatever you're, you are a fig about and you really get into, 
you know what? Heck, why not? Even stuff you're a pomegranate about. Even stuff that you're good at faking and you can just force yourself to do. If you want to really, really have that solid in your own life for you and your children, if you want that mitzvah to be rock solid in your home, there's one secret, and that's give it away. Give it away. The Yiddishkeit that you truly have, the only Yiddishkeit that you truly have, is whatever Yiddishkeit you are actively involved in giving to others. That's perfection. Living for others. Like the flourishing of the date palm that gives fruits, that takes from its own energy and, and, and gives fruits. In the end, the date palm doesn't suffer at all. That The date palm gains. Date palm gains. That's how we gain. That's how we live. That's how, that's how we reach our fulfillment is, is, is by not pursuing our own fulfillment. Not, not like that cedar in Lebanon. Look out for others and just a healthy way to live. Ends up being very, very good ends up being very healthy for us as well. Not because we were trying to do it, but just because that's how we were designed. We were made to be givers. So those are a few lessons that we learned from the trees and their fruits. And uh, now all we have to do is like we said about the Torah scholar who has fruits, we have to emotionally connect with the lesson. I leave that up to everybody to uh, do that on your own. Go take a walk around the block, go meditate, and uh, emotionally connect with the lesson. Thanks. Thank Happy New Year.